Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I have the great pleasure of welcoming my friend and colleague, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Shabbat Beit Halachmi, the President Scholar of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and National Director of Recruitment and Admissions at the college. Rachel, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Today we're going to talk about some of the personal and ethical issues surrounding conversations and friendships and relationships with people who have radically different viewpoints than us. The Times of Israel recently ran a blog of yours in which you ask in the ethical jam section, can I stay friends with a racist? And you come up with some interesting uh, possibilities for maintaining relationships, which seems to be your point of departure, that we should presume that we want to keep relationships rather than scuttle them on the basis of differences of opinion. Well, yes and no. <laughs> depends on the opinion. It depends on the opinion. It also depends on the situation. I think certainly as people who are interested in a community and in the power of our community to be able to share values and achieve our right our meta goals in the world, I think as much as possible we want to maintain discourse, hopefully civil discourse. And that is incredibly easy when you just hang around with people who are like-minded. You and I can agree about a lot of things. But what happens when you and I really disagree? What happens when you encounter somebody who is just cheering on a political opinion or an ideological opinion or a religious opinion that you just find disgusting? then what do you do? That's the question. What do you do? Do you just shun that person? Do you tell them they're, they're an idiot? Do you part ways and ignore them? Do you just sweep it under the carpet? You have a whole bunch of choices. You, you describe in your blog response, it might seem easier just to let it go. But I think the easiest thing to do is just to sweep it under the carpet. That's the, <laughs> that's the laziest option. I like that one. Well, it's tempting because then we can just be polite and you know right. hang out together and carry on. But we won't have really dealt with anything. No, and the relationship would probably stall at some point, or you'd start edging away. I want to pick up on something that you you quote, which I think is particularly instructive. In Leviticus, as you quote, uh, it says, You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not hate him in your heart. That to me is particularly compelling, because what it's saying, effectively, is that a rebuke is an expression of friendship. Actually, the later commentators see that it's not even just uh, maintains relationship and maintains friendship. They actually say you can't love, have true love between people without the possibility of serious critique and rebuke. So actually, if I rebuke you and I say, listen, Dr. Hollow, your opinions are despicable. And this is why you're wrong, not just that you're an idiot, right. which you might be, but <laughs> you're a brilliant one. I've been accused. You with the wrong opinion. You've been accused of worse, yeah. But if I actually say to you, this is why your opinion's wrong, and it's actually not in keeping with Jewish tradition, I'm actually hopefully not humiliating you in public. I wouldn't do it in public, which we'll come to right. later. But actually, I'm expressing how much I respect you and love you, because I want to actually help you have a more moral stance in the world. I think you're wrong, so I want to fix you. Wow, with friends like that, who needs enemies, <laughs> I'll tell you, man. <laughs> it could be unpleasant. <laughs> But actually, if I really believe in my idea and I really care about you, I do want to correct you. All right. So what, what if we have uh, the, the, the blog, the question posed by the Ethical Jam section is pretty extreme, something really racist or, you know, surely there's a limit. Do you always have to talk it out and arrive at the 
measured and reasoned conclusion that we agree to disagree? Well, here's the here's the really really challenging thing about our tradition. We actually are required to try to push someone. In fact, we not I don't have to come to you and talk to you just once about it. I have to keep talking to you over and over and over again because actually if I really consider you to be part of my community and one of my people, then actually I don't stop talking to you about it until I feel that you have either one heard me and you might change your opinion and see that issue differently or that it's actually clear to me that you're now digging in your heels about your opinion, that you can't hear me at all, and then, and only then, am I allowed to step back. So, so actually, the, I'm required to engage with you. The, the, the tradition recognizes the, that emotional place where, where things can't be communicated anymore. Or worse, right? The Rambam actually says that after three times, if I see that you're digging in your heels and you're actually becoming more committed to your racist wrong opinions, then I should desist from trying to change your opinion about it and change your mind about it. But until then, I'm required to try. I see. So there's Isn't the, that annoying? Uh, that's right. It could be, a, <laughs> could make for some uh, complicated meals, I think. it's. Uh, but um, all right, so you have uh, a friend. You, you have to assume some kind of shared destiny. Otherwise, why bother? That's right. I have to actually really care about what you think. Right. Right. And many of our friendships straddle a finer line than that, maybe, where we don't really consider them part of our community or we don't necessarily feel a shared destiny with this mm -hmm. person. But we care what they think. We have to live in a world where what they think has some sway. But we, we're not actually committed to them as, as, as friends with a capital F. Right. So in that case, you could say that Leviticus doesn't apply, right? Because you're not achicha, you're not amitecha, you're not one of my brothers or one of my colleagues that I really care about. Maybe you're just like the guy I was telling the story about watching one of the presidential de debates in a, in a bar-like situation and realizing that the pers people next to me had completely different political opinions than I do, right? In that case, I would say to them, this requirement of Leviticus doesn't apply. I don't have to engage them and change their mm -hmm. minds. But you, you're in my synagogue, you're in my shul, you're in my institution, you're a Jew, I actually, your opinion is going to matter for our future. So I want to influence it and let you know that it's actually, you're wrong. It's, it's unethical to have that view of other human beings created in the image of God. How could you see them that way? How could you not care whether it's about the refugee or another person who's oppressed or the orphan or the widow or another political opinion? How could you not see it the way I think Judaism wants you to see it? Right. And from a rabbinical perspective, and you're a rabbi as well, that really raises some difficult issues because a lot of Jews feel harangued by their rabbi, bullied, frankly, yeah. uh, on the bully pulpit, yeah. uh, the, uh, the bima. What do we do with that? I think that's... Um a fascinating challenge for contemporary Judaism. I was uh, in a congregation recently where someone said to me, you know, I don't think rabbis should be political. Right. And of course, we've heard that a lot. And I think one of the powerful things that our institution and our movement has been able to say is actually Judaism is political. The Torah is political. It is about society. It is about values. And if we keep everything all the time very nice and sort of parv, right, uh, neither black nor white, we're making right. it so, what's the... Yeah, the fish nor fowl. Right. We're making it just so comfortable all the time. We want everybody to feel comfortable. We actually will not have been doing what we're supposed to do in the world, which well, is what, to affect society and to change things that we think are but wrong. A rabbi, we can disagree. A rabbi does have a bully pulpit, mm -hmm. and there is, there is a power imbalance there. 
And a lot of, I mean, let's name this. In the reform okay. movement, which is the standard bearer, we would argue, for liberal mm -hmm. Judaism and, and, and its founding movement, and still very much active in liberalism, as we understand it, in the American political spectrum, the truth is that many conservatives feel not engaged with a open conversation, which also, by the way, mm -hmm. presumably, if you're going to prevail upon your true friend, yeah. you also have to be open to be prevailed upon. Uh -huh. And the, the the conservative members in our synagogues often feel simply prevailed upon. No, I, I know that. And I, I'll tell you, I think we're missing a huge opportunity. I think about this every time I'm with one of our our, uh, our colleagues or our supporters or our students who have, who have different or who think they have very different political opinions than I do. The opportunity I think we're missing is the power of our movement and our people to be bipartisan going after shared values. Instead, what do we do? We just agree to disagree and everybody acts really politely and we do pretty much nothing instead of saying actually from our places of power we do have some shared values maybe we think we should go about them differently but is there an area whether it's about gun violence let's say okay. or refugees let's say or israel is there an area where we can actually find some agreement about values and we won't find my my contention is that we won't find those places of agreement if we're not willing to actually have those arguments and have the conversation that Leviticus is asking us to have. But I also hear you saying, let's take gun violence, for mm -hmm. example. We could probably come to a reasonable agreement between a, a gun rights person versus a gun control person mm -hmm. who will articulate shared values of a safe society, mm -hmm. right? They're both going to say that people have a right to be unafraid. Yeah. And I think we would all agree, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Do I hear you saying that's okay? They can arrive at a shared commitment to a safe society. Mm -hmm. And we still, at the end of the day, are going to have to accept the fact that the gun rights person is going to vote, donate money, take actions in diametrically opposed ways from the gun uh, control activist, even right. though they've arrived at their shared Right. So here's what here's what I would say. That's first of all, that's going to happen. And that always has happened anyway. Right. It's going to happen anyway. But the question is, and this is what I'm trying to get at. Did they have a conversation first? Did they actually present their opinions in a way that was respectful and they were both arguing it from Jewish values? And did they actually find out that they agree about two things that they can do something about, which would be, let's say, background checks or um, an extra security measures for the, wep the manufacture of weapons, right? One of the things that one of our colleagues is working on. If those two things actually could work on them together and bring to bear your collective power, based on your shared values, then I would actually say you have probably come to a not hate each other in your hearts because you've achieved something positive together. You've taken some responsibility for the issue in your society. And actually, rather than walking away from each other and feeling like I failed to correct you, I actually feel like there's something we can now do together, right? As opposed to just completely walking away and saying that we have nothing to do with them and then you have no conversation and no mutual responsibility. The tradition's trying to say, even with those with whom you disagree, you share responsibility for your society. It's, an, it's a very high bar. You, you, you have to have that sense of shared destiny going into the conversation because otherwise you won't make it through to the end of the conversation. Pretty much, which is <laughs> which is what happens most of the time, right? Which right? Is what happens because most of our relationships aren't that uh, most of our relationships aren't that deep or that committed. 
So that, and so I would say uh, that this this verse in the Torah and all the commentary around it around it is actually insisting for us to try to have those conversations. Now, how do you have them? First of all, not in public, right? Which seems to go back to the rabbi being political, though, because the rabbi being political is in public by definition. I mean, it's not that when they say their rabbi shouldn't be political. What they mean is from the bima, right? I don't think the rabbi has ever would ever go after a single individual and say, you know, you. No, but they go after a single issue. They'll go after an issue, absolutely in public. They'll make an argument of what about what they think our tradition. But they're not going to call someone out from the synagogue. But let's say, but let's even like say, um, and when you apply this issue to Israel, it gets really complicated. But let's say I think you did something wrong in a, I don't know, in a learning session we were in together in some big context. I don't know, a biennial or some conference. I'm not going to stand up and say, actually, Dr. Hollow, the way you presented that issue uh, around. I don't know, Israelis or Muslims or I don't know, um, was completely wrong. Right? For me to right. say that in public in front of you, what have I achieved? I've probably shamed you, in which I shouldn't do, even if I'm wrong and you're right. I've shamed you and I've created a situation where you probably can't even hear anything. Right. But our tradition saying, actually, if you think he presented it wrong, and I think that you've brought people to an opinion that either you didn't intend to, or I think it's not what our tradition says, or it's not what our institution should be doing now. It's actually my responsibility to seek you out, find you, have a meeting with you, take you out for coffee, and explain to you why I think that that was wrong, and to try to change the way you might do that in the future. Let's say I think you were offend- you were being, I don't know, a sexist idiot, and I know you didn't intend to, right. but you made a joke. You keep making the same joke in class or in a meeting. You would never do this. This is all hypothetical, of course. course. (laughs) But let's say, what if, and I don't want to, let's say I'm so concerned about not offending you that I never say anything. So then I watch you do it in the next class. I watch you do it again and again. And actually, I think if somebody would call your attention to the fact that that actually could be heard, you didn't mean it, but it could be heard as a sexist thing, and you've now distanced all these students from you, I've actually given you a huge gift because now you'll tell a different joke next time. All right, so you fix the situation. I hear you and the and Maimonides agreeing that that there's this tremendous burden of investment in a relationship, uh, which is what this is really about, right. and that the relationship takes precedence over the opinion that might be causing the strife, and that yes, there is a limit that 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 there's a point at which, if a person is digging in or what have you, you you can't go any further without it, and and both you and the Rambam recognize that. But that's procedural. Mm -hmm. Is there a limit based on the idea being proposed? Is there an idea that simply being put on the table Mm -hmm. automatically all bets are off? If someone says something so despicable, Mm -hmm. so offensive, such a non-starter for conversation that you're you're not obligated to even... That they engage. place themselves so far out of the for, Yeah, for example, in, okay, a, in, yeah, in, a, traditional, example. in a traditional uh, Jewish context, if someone posits a multiplicity of gods yeah. and simply denies the monotheistic right. principle, is one expected to even engage with that? Or is that already proven that their destiny is no longer shared with us and that we're not obligated to care? Well, fascinating. I think that that's what's changed even in our lifetimes. I would, th- I would, I think for our parents in previous generations, you could walk away from that conversation and say we don't share destinies, but you and I live in a context where our, you know, products of our movement are the products of multi-faith households. They themselves go off to college. I just met a few of them recently, and they actually can have a leadership position in a Jewish organization and a leadership position in another uh, non-Jewish organization, sometimes even polytheistic and not even monotheistic. Am I going to end the conversation? 
with Certainly them. not as national director of recruitment <laughs> and admissions. You don't end any conversation. Actually, I might even see it. See, this is where I think these the lines change over time. I think if you were to ask me even 10 years ago, I would say that's not a conversation we need to be part of right. and just spend our resources on. Today, I would say I, that's a conversation opener. Right. Isn't that a fascinating moment to be in in history? Have we ever been in this conversation before? No, I want to get in there and hopefully, right, okay, make the argument. You're, you're in a unique position. A, you're uniquely um, uh, empowered by your position and, and, and learned by virtue of your education to approach these things. Some of the worst conversations in American Judaism today are happening about Israel. Yeah. And Israel is kind of a sacred cow for American Jewish discourse, and I think we've handled it pretty badly as a community. Either it's shallow and lacking mm -hmm. any uh, depth, or it's angry. Yeah, or both. Or both. It's often both. And often characterized mm -hmm. by the uh, throwing around of, of, of accusations of, of being beyond the pale. Yep, exactly. So uh, that's a tough one. Also because it's a big communal, multilateral conversation, it's very hard to rein in. So I, so I think this actually perfectly applies there as well. I think that the as, in as much as we're having a shallow, overly simplistic conversation about Israel, we're also achieving nothing. We're not doing justice to some of the challenges that Israel is facing. And I think we're particularly not doing any service to the next generation. Because what if you're a college student on campus, just to take us back to those situations, because they're our future leaders, and you just see the establishment completely demonizing each other over these issues, and it's so complicated, and you actually don't know enough about it to engage, what are you going to do? You're walk actually going to do worse than the verse, right? You're not even going to have a chance to hate anybody in your yeah, heart. Right, you're, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're gone. You're gone. You're just out doing a million other things that you could do as a college student or even as a, as a young adult or an adult in our community. Why get involved in such a, a complicated and you know, false dichotomy about Israel? So I would say there, the verse absolutely applies. And it's teaching us to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's actually some sense of responsibility that you have to know enough right. to engage. And there is a presupposition of shared destiny because the very notion of American Jews being Zionists right. in the first place is, is the sense uh, that we have a shared exactly, destiny. Exactly. But it could be, and this, you know, is something that I'm not, I'm not proud to say. It could be that we actually really do have multiple kinds of Jewish communities in, uh, developing before our very eyes, and that there's going to be a big chunk of American Judaism that doesn't really feel concern yeah. and a shared destiny with Israel because they've spent two generations uh, walking away for a variety of reasons. And then actually the American Jewish lobby and the American Jewish community will be in a very difficult position in terms of wanting to be that, right, Amitecha, that fellow and friend and closer distant cousin with Israel because we really won't have the power of a full community to bring to bear. That's right. Even That's with right. diversity, even with diversity. So in terms of Israel, I would say some of the same things that we learned from the commentators about this verse actually all the more so apply. How we do it with care, when we do it. One of the, one of the moments that was really striking to me is during the Gaza war, right? I'm someone who really believes I should be able to hear and understand every Jewish opinion about Israel, just a pluralist philosophy that of mine that each one has, you know, something to teach me. And there was a moment when it was the middle of the Gaza war, and I'm literally running in and out of shelters with my three little kids in places that we never could have imagined would have been attacked. 
Jerusalem, the beaches of Tel Aviv, right? This wasn't that long ago. And I remember walking out of, getting out of one of these shelters and, you know, checking the general news. And I found out that one of the Jewish organizations in a particular city in North America had decided that they weren't going to stand with the rest of the community in a Israel solidarity moment. And I, I had this moment of really saying to myself, you know, Ad Khan. Up until this you've moment, reached your limit. yes, you thank you for the translation. You've reached your limit. These people that I, you know, literally are some of my best friends, but I had that moment of saying, you know, for God's sake, you can't stand with Israel right now. We're running in and out of shelters in cities. Forget about the territories. Forget about all the other things. Right in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, we're running in and out of shelters with our little kids, and you can't stand in support of Israel right now on a Sunday morning in a big city in North America on a sunny day. Right. So there are those moments where I'll say, you know, wait a minute, that is that is the limit in a particular scenario. And I think that's what the commentators are saying. There are times and places for these conversations. And there are times when, let's say, one could even argue that Israel had mishandled one of these any situation. Right. Absolutely. At that absolutely. moment, running out of shelters, running in and out way, of shelters with our kids. You can't yeah, hear yeah, it. Right. Understand. Can't hear absolutely. it. So we, can, we don't say it. So there's a big issue here about how we have the conversation when we have the conversation right. and whether Context or not we, matters. Yeah, and whether or not we expect someone to be able to listen to us. And if you don't have just to take it back to the interpersonal, much less severe situation, if you and I don't have a relationship of mutual respect, then me coming to you, Dr. Hollow, and saying I think you did something wrong is not going to lead us anywhere. Right. We nor, have no relationship. Nor, nor, right. Nor would it have been expected in the first place. Okay, closing closing question. Give me an example mm -hmm. as a parting shot of a conversation that appears to be something we cannot overcome, but in fact is an opportunity for us to have precisely this kind of constructive disagreement. So I think an example of that, and a wonderful example that we've seen over recent decades, is a total transformation of the way most of our, our colleagues and our alumni see the issue of officiating at intermarriages. 20 years ago, very few, or 30 years ago, very few of our alumni felt comfortable and public about that officiation. And over the last decades, what we've seen is something that went from being an absolute sacred cow for most of the Jewish people. We might ex we might be very accepting of intermarried couples, right? But not it so doesn't keen, mean no right, right? But not so keen about officiation. I've seen masses of our alumni. I mean, in the in the hundreds, quite frankly, move from a position of saying couldn't even talk about it or imagine it to today saying, how could we not? It's become clear that actually when we engage in the conversation with the intermarried couple and the interfaith couple, that if we engage in the conversation uh, in the way that is most appropriate for them and for the context, that in fact, in numbers that we couldn't have predicted, they and their children have remained part of the Jewish community part of the Jewish story, and their children, this is what's so fascinating to me, are now applying to be the rabbis Hebrew themselves. Jewish right? We couldn't, right no, a couple of decades ago, that would have been unthinkable. Right. And I would give credit to the colleagues that I may have disagreed with, and even in some ways continue to disagree with, a decade or two ago. They actually engaged in a conversation in a way that turned out to be absolutely, I would even say, redemptive for the Jewish people and for our movement. And so, actually, I think that should give us some humility about the things that we might, in the, in the moment, think are absolutely unthinkable, and imagine what can happen if you actually are willing to have the conversation. Well, here's to having more of those conversations with our colleagues and uh, with you. Thank you very much for joining us, yeah. Rachel. Shabbat Betalach. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.